What's up, everybody? It is AJ. Welcome back to another episode. And today I'm really excited. This is actually going to be a solo episode, so I'm just going to kind of talk you guys through some of the stuff that's been on my mind lately. Uh, with the weather in St. Louis really turning over the last week or so, we're finally starting to get into our warmer weathers. Summer is on the horizon. You can feel spring in the air. It's pretty exciting. Uh, and with every single transition from winter backpacking season more to that spring-summer feel here in St. Louis, I'm always thinking about float trips. It's something that is really common here in the Midwest. It's a really fun summertime activity. Uh, a lot of people participate and get a lot of fun out of it. And I thought I would go through kind of some of the lessons that I've learned, some of the basics of how to plan a float trip, what you need to bring on your float trip, uh, how to maximize the fun on your float trip, what to expect, what not to expect, things like that. Uh, so I thought I would go ahead and jump right in. Most float trips, at least in my experience, are going to be uh, of a couple of different formats. And I'll kind of start with the distance, and then we're going to talk about uh, kind of the float craft or what you would actually be going down the river in, and then all the way down to uh, kind of everything you need to bring. So first and foremost, I think what a lot of people need to know about float trips is there's kind of a few different ways to do it. You can go on a single day float trip where you're driving to the location, you're getting out of your car with really limited stuff, just kind of what you need for the day. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later as, uh, you know, what you need to bring on those just kind of one day float trips. But uh, you're going out, you're probably going to do somewhere in the range of like five or 10 miles. It's going to be like a three to five, six hour deal, depending on how fast you go and how often you stop. And then you're going to get out of the uh, the water, you're going to turn your canoe back in or your, your craft back in whatever it is that you floated on, uh, and you're going to get in your car and you're going to drive home. It's probably the best way to just get your feet wet, <laughs> quote, pun intended, uh, to kind of just dip a toe in the water and see what it's all about without having to commit a ton of stuff. Uh, if you're an, a seasoned outdoors person, then this will be a little bit easier for you because it just kind of comes more naturally. But if you're just someone that wants to get out, have some fun, float down a river, drink some beers or some waters or whatever uh, kind of suits your fancy, then a one-day float trip is a great way to go. So the second way, which is I think what's probably most common for most people that I see on float trips, is a two-day float with a campsite in the middle. So, for example, in southern Missouri, uh, one of the float trips that you can do is uh, with Cars Canoe Rental or with uh, a bunch of different companies down in kind of southern, you know, south-central Missouri or so around the current river, which is where I really like to float, um, is you will show up at the canoe rental place. They will uh, typically put you on a bus you would then drive 30, 45 minutes. You get to the pull-in or to the put-in. They give you canoes, paddles, um, you know, life vests, seats, everything that you need to kind of move along your day. You'd basically end up right back at your car, which is really nice because you can keep all of your stuff in your vehicle. You don't have to set anything up right away. You just basically have it all uh, back at the campsite. And the nice thing about that is a couple of things. A, you have facilities. So a lot of campsites will have shower facilities, bathrooms. Uh, they'll have a store where you can pick up extra provisions or food or things like that that you might need, anything that you left behind. Batteries, stupid stuff that you typically forget on trips like this. Um, and you kind of have a more civilized way of going about it. You have everything you need. You have lights. You have all that stuff. Uh, the next day you would get up, you basically get back in your canoes, you go another 10 or so miles, you'd get picked up by that same school bus or small shuttle van, whatever they use, uh, and they'd bring you back to your car and you drive home. So that's kind of the second way. So there's the first day, you know, kind of one day trips. There's the two day trips where you stay at a campsite. And then there's the types of trips that I personally prefer being someone that's got a little bit more experience and, and just the way I was introduced to it, which really made it fun for me. Um, are the float trips where you're basically going and you float, say, 10 miles your first day and you literally just pull over on the side of the river on a gravel bar. There's absolutely no infrastructure. There's absolutely no resources. And it's just you, your friends, and open air. And it's great. You got to bring everything you need. You got to bring everything you need to cook. And we'll get more into the gear later. Um, but it's a much more primitive experience. And to me, it's a lot more rewarding, a lot more fun. Uh, and you've got a lot more privacy in, you know, many, many uh, components of, of the float. 
And those types of trips can go anywhere from one or two days all the way out to 10, 12. Some people have gone much further. Uh, I know that one of the canoe companies that I rent for, uh, rent from here in, in southern Missouri, uh, has like a 200-mile float, which if you were really humping it would probably take you 10 or 15 days. Um, so that's a... Uh, an opportunity for people that really want to kind of extend their trip out or do something that's more significant. If you were coming from outside of the Midwest to float one of our rivers, that might be the way to go. Um, so all those three different ways to float. So now that we've kind of talked about the different ways that you can float, uh, how do you actually get down the river? So most people uh, are going to do one of two methods. It's either going to be a kayak or a canoe. That's kind of the most common that we see here in Missouri. An individual person kayak, uh, which is typically people that have their own, or you can rent them, um, but a little bit more difficult to carry stuff if you're going for those longer trips. Uh, canoes are probably the most common. That's what I see the most on the river. Uh, third most would be, and kind of kayaks being the second, uh, the third most would be the larger inflatable rafts, like something that you would see in whitewater rafting that have kind of the big inflatable sides and more of a uh, an opportunity that, you know, four or five, even six people. Um, that is kind of a go where the river takes you kind of thing. You don't typically have as much maneuverability as you would in a canoe or a kayak. But if you just want to go out and get drunk and drink your face off for a day, that might be the way to go. It's probably the least catastrophic. They're really hard to tip. I don't think I've ever seen one tip. Um and they're just typically like passed out people by the end of the day, uh, sunburnt in the bottom of a raft. So if that's you, if you're like, we're going to get hammered drunk, we're going to drink 20 beers a piece, we're just going to cruise down the river and get sunburnt all day, and that's going to be our thing, more power to you. Go for that. That's the way to go. Uh, the fourth way, which is if you really want to be lazy, would be like an inner tube scenario, like an old school tire inner tube. You're wet all day, you're always in the water, and you're pretty much just floating by yourself. You don't really bring any gear. It's even difficult to have refreshments, beer, water, things like that with you. It's kind of more of a short trip. Uh, you know, we just want to go down there for the day kind of thing. So, uh, you know, canoes, kayaks, then rafts, then inner tubes. My personal preference is canoe. If you are with someone that knows how to canoe, if you are two novices that have never canoed before, a float trip is probably going to be a bad time if you're on a river that has any kind of obstacles, water, trees, shallow uh, shallow river, anything like that, because there's a pretty strong chance that you're going to catch one wrong turn, one tree, one something you're going to tip. And if you don't have the right gear, you're probably not going to enjoy yourself. Uh, the very first float trip I ever went on was with some friends of mine from high school. Uh, a couple of guys that had never really gone canoeing before somehow got matched up and didn't get more experienced partners. And luckily enough, they maintained their canoe the entire trip. They had a great time. And then just before they left, they kind of lost their focus. They tipped over. One guy lost a $300 sleeping bag to the river because he wasn't quite prepared with the right gear. Uh, and it basically just floated to the bottom in a uh, black trash bag uh, as his water gear. And so uh, that was not a fun trip. When you look back for those guys, they got pretty bitter about it. Uh, they lost a lot of money and it was just kind of a, a rough thing. Now, um, if you have some experience in canoeing, if you know what you're doing, even a little bit, uh, even if you've watched some YouTube videos, you probably have a really good time. Uh, you're going to choose a friend that is someone that you're going to want to talk to all day because you're going to be in the canoe with them six, eight, maybe even more hours than that. And so it's going to be a lot of personal conversations. Now, if you go in larger groups, which I fully recommend, the first float trip I went on was probably 12 or 14 guys. And everyone I've been on since then, except for a few, have been larger groups. I've done some more small personal ones too. But quite frankly, the larger ones are really funny because you end up kind of partnering up with canoes and the, the group will get spread out. And you'll end up, you know, spending an hour or two with these guys and you'll kind of part ways and they'll go off in a different direction and you kind of float back a little bit with some guys from behind you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're spending the rest of the day with a whole different group of guys, even though you're all in one kind of uh, party. So something that I would highly recommend, go with lots of friends, especially if you aren't as experienced, it will likely make the day a lot more fun. You can laugh at each other if you do tip. Um, and you know, it, it just makes for a lot more fun. So speaking of tipping in at least my experience on the current river and a couple of other rivers that have floated, uh, the 11 point and some others, most of the rivers that you're going to be floating are probably somewhere in the range of 20 yards wide to 50 yards wide. 
depending on where they're at in the the landscape. And then they're going to be anywhere between like a foot deep and I would say probably 15 feet deep at least in my estimation in the deeper parts. Um, You're not talking the Mississippi. You're not talking the Missouri River, although people do float the Missouri. Um, I I really do believe that, you know, if you got basic swimming skills, you're going to be completely fine on a float trip. If you don't have basic swimming skills, wear a life vest. You'll be fine. Uh, don't let the unknown of a river that you've never been on scare you out of going and having an incredible experience because float trips are, in my opinion, and I love backpacking, more fun than backpacking if you really think about it. Um, so, you know, backpacking is great and you're going to spend a lot of time working. Float trips are a lot more just kind of chilling, relaxing, having a couple of beers, uh, hanging out with your friends. There's probably a, a combined hour of intense canoeing over the course of two days, at least on the rivers that I've been on. And the rest of it is pretty much just letting the current take you where it goes and having some fun with your friends, having a couple of beers, smoking too many cigarettes and, uh, you know, yelling out stupid things throughout the day to make your friends have fun and and laugh. So, uh, you know, a foot to 20 feet deep, probably 20 yards to 50 yards wide is is the typical uh, river. And I would even say 50 is probably an overestimation. Uh, How many people should you go on your float? Just kind of touched a little bit on this earlier, but... In my experience, having 10, 12, even 14 people is a lot of fun. Uh, I think a a group of six or eight would still be a great time. Uh, But six or eight, you're probably going to spend more time kind of as one clump the majority of the trip, where if you get larger groups, then everybody kind of spreads out a little bit more, at least in our our group. Um, And it just tends to be a lot of fun in kind of the varying conversations that you have throughout the day. Uh, and, and I'll get to this a little bit later, but one of the games that we play on the float trip that I go on every summer with about 12 or 14 guys is we bring those howler kind of nerf, um, footballs, the ones that are the vortexes that have kind of the tail on them. And you can really wing one of those things quite a far away. And you really want the ones with the howlers, the kind of that, you know, um, bomb siren kind of thing when they're flying through the air. And the reason is we typically bring two or three of those on our trips, and we'll have 12 or 14 guys. And so uh, you break that into, you know, six, seven canoes. You've got a howler football for like one out of every two or one out of every three canoes. And essentially the game is we're just constantly throwing them at each other from our canoes uh, throughout the day and trying to hit, you know, guys or, or canoes in, in other parts of the river. Uh, you obviously are not just winging them at them when they're point blank. Uh, it's not meant to be a cruel or not meant to be a painful thing. More of it is when that thing goes up in the air and you hear that, that whistle, that siren from 50, 60 yards away, my goodness, does everybody duck like there is an actual bomb coming in. Uh, and it becomes really fun when people start to get, you know, a foot, two feet away from a canoe big splash and everybody has a good time. Uh, so if you've if never done that in your float trips before, I highly encourage it. It's a ton of fun and it really adds to uh, kind of the, the low points or the slower parts of the day. Guys will sit on a football and just let it sit there for an hour and kind of try and make people forget about it. And then all of a sudden it comes out out of nowhere when you stop and pull over to the side of the river, hang out. Guys are throwing them back and forth, you know, 60 yards, 70 yards away. Uh, and then the challenge of trying to stand up in your canoe and throw one of these things when you're in six, eight feet of water and your boat's tipping side to side and your, you know, canoe mates having fun, uh, maybe a couple of too many beers deep. Uh, that is a really fun game that I would highly encourage anybody to to get after it and play. Um, the smaller trips are also really, really great. Kind of getting back to the number of people. Uh, I've gone on canoe trips with friends, with, you know, girlfriends and, and all that kind of thing. Um, float trips are really, really fun for the simple fact that it is a really relaxing day and it's a great opportunity to just kind of sit back, get some sun, hang out, disconnect from your phone, disconnect from the world and just kind of appreciate the beauty of the world. And one of the things that you really start to get in tune with, at least I do, is the force of nature, right? The, the fact that this river is just carving a path through the wilderness is really amazing to uh, observe and be a part of and, and look at all the animals that are participating in it. You'll see fish and, you know, mink and, and things like that on the side of the river, which is really fun to do throughout the day. It just really makes you feel a lot more connected uh, than sometimes I even do when I'm on backpacking trips, because a lot of times you're just grinding through those miles and you don't take the time, or at least I don't, to, you know, think about, uh, you know, what I'm going through and all that kind of stuff. So the float trips can be really, really great. 
Um, one of the things that I think is really, really important to think about when you're planning a float trip, if you're going to be going with multiple people, is who's bringing what and kind of who's the point person. Uh, in our group, we have two or three guys that really do the majority of the organization. They book the canoes, they set the date, they let everybody know what they need to bring, and they kind of do the majority of the legwork that makes planning a float trip difficult. Um, you know, one of the things that you've got to do is, at least for ours, is you've got to pay a deposit on the canoes to make sure that they're reserved and then you pay for the majority of it when you get down there. You know, having somebody that can absorb that deposit for 10, 15 guys is really, really helpful. So you're not like constantly all calling down there trying to get on the same trip. So that can be really convenient if you have someone that's able to do that. That's been really, really nice uh, for our trips. And then we just like Venmo you know, the, the balance or whatever that we need to, or, or send it with square cash or something like that, or cash obviously works too, to the guy, uh, that organizes it, but also in thinking about the community gear, right? So we're going to get into gear a little bit later, but some of the stuff that really gets shared most often between guys, uh, or, or folks on float trips are the camping or cooking stuff, right? Is not everybody owns a tent, not everybody even owns a sleeping bag, so a lot of times that stuff gets borrowed amongst other guys on the trip that have a little bit more gear. I've got, I don't know how many sleeping bags, so I, you know, lend them out like crazy. Um, and then, you know, who's going to bring kind of the common cooking stuff, right? Like we have eggs and bacon every morning in pans. Well, one of the guys has to carry those pans, and one of the guys brings a big grill uh, plate, you know, kind of a tray that goes over our fire where we cook all of our food at night and in the morning. Uh, you know, we, we typically bring a cookie cake that gets shared around. Uh, it sounds stupid, but we do it. And it's a really, really fun thing to have at the end of the night. Uh, one guy takes responsibility for it and gets it. Um, you know, guys will, will take responsibility for bringing some firewood to make sure that we have dry wood when we get to camp. Uh, you know, we've been in scenarios before where finding dry wood is difficult, especially along the side of a river. And so uh, having one or two bundles of firewood can be really, really helpful just in getting things going before you've got that critical mass built up of, of you know, 10 or 12 guys wandering around in the woods trying to find wood. So <clears throat> having a plan coordinated ahead of time on who's going to bring what I think is a really valuable thing to do. And if you just schedule like a conference call or a meetup or something like that where everybody just grabs a cup of coffee and kind of chats through who's going to bring the big shared stuff, I think typically you're going to be a lot better off than if you just leave that to chance. In my experience over the last several years that we've done our float trips, it's been very beneficial for one person to take responsibility of the main meal in the evening. We typically do steaks, potatoes, vegetables, all kinds of stuff. The first year, everybody brought their own. Everybody had extremely disparate stuff. Some people brought these massive steaks. Some people brought little fillets. And we had this giant jockeying game of who was going to get to use the grill when. And the next year, uh, we were really fortunate that one of our friends who's a butcher out of Nashville with an incredible store. I will link that uh, below. I got to find it because uh, he's, he's a mutual friend of the group. So I'm not personal, really good friends with Andy. But uh, for a couple of years, he came and brought homemade sausages and flat iron steaks and potatoes and uh, all kinds of stuff. And then that got picked up the year uh, after he left uh, by another guy named Andy. And uh, we've always had really good food. And it's been nice because people don't panic on what to bring. We all know that the big dinner is cared for and taken care of. Everybody just brings some cash and, and throws it in the pot towards the big meal. Um, but we at least know that everybody's going to have like a kick-ass meal. If somebody forgets something or if somebody kind of planned poorly, they're not going to be sitting there uh, thinking, you know, man, I really screwed up. All these guys have really good food and I'm kind of sitting here with a can of beans or something like that. Uh, that was my experience the first year I brought uh, a cold thing of pulled pork and everybody else brought steaks and burgers and stuff. And they're all sitting there with these hot meals and I'm, you know, choking down cold pulled pork and it just did not feel like the same experience that everybody else had. So coordinating what you're going to bring as far as the group stuff and then how you're going to do the bigger meal if you're doing like a one night side of the river camping trip or even a one night in the campground camping trip having one person coordinate that big meal is definitely advantageous if you have the ability um, so for a lot of float trips one of the things that have kind of crept up on many of the experiences that i've had is understanding how far away the car or the, the canoe rental location that you're going to have is and what kind of roads you're going to be traveling to get there. 
Um, one of the things that really caught me off guard early on was that most of these canoe rental places, to their credit, are pretty backcountry hill folk. Um, they're really nice people. They've been doing it for 30 or 40 years, but you know they're not technologically advanced in most cases, and they just kind of don't give a shit about whether you have your stuff put together or not because their business is just kind of rolling along. So um, know how far away it is and give yourself extra time. I can't tell you how many times we've had guys that say, you know, all right, we're all going to meet at the river at 830 in the morning on a Saturday morning and there's a Cardinals game the night before. Guys have a couple too many cocktails. You know, they, they're out a little bit too late and all of a sudden it's 9, 30, 10 o'clock by the time they're hitting the river. And we're all delayed on our trip and everybody kind of gets grouchy when that happens. So know how far you need to drive. Give yourself some extra time. The first year that I went, my buddy Nathan got uh, pretty car sick on the way down because those southern Missouri roads and, you know, obviously this applies just to Missouri, but like know where you're going in general. Know if you're going to be on windy roads, if you're going to be on backcountry roads or whether you're going to be on major highways, uh, plan for, you know, adverse weather, rain, things like that. So that if you do uh, need an extra half an hour, an hour, you've got it built in and you're not sitting there scrambling and trying to get your gear together too fast because inevitably when that happens, people forget stuff. And then all of a sudden there's a sleeping bag in a trunk and nobody has something to sleep in. So always plan ahead. If you can, uh, give yourself plenty of time to get there. Um, where you are staying plays a factor. If you're staying in the campground, make sure you have a reservation before you go down. Um, don't show up where there's not going to be a campsite for you. And then all of a sudden you're scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. Same thing. If you're going down and you're coming back, that's not as big a deal. But if you're going to go down and stay on the side of the river, have a general idea of where along the river you want to stay. I've had friends that have used Google Maps before to kind of look at the satellite view of the river and see where some of the bigger gravel bars are. Not always reliable because the rivers do really change in um, depth and height and how big the sandbars are and major storms plays a big factor. Uh, one of the campsites that we used to really love going to is just gone. Um, not campsites, but one of the gravel bars that we really liked is just not there anymore because uh, we've had some really big floods and storms in, in Missouri that have basically washed those gravel bars away, filled them in, moved the trees, done all kinds of damage. So all of a sudden, what used to be our favorite campsite is just not there anymore. So you have to be a little bit flexible. And I would say plan a little bit more towards this, the early part of the day versus letting yourself get deep into the evening because our experiences have been if you get too, too far into the evening, most of your good gravel bars are going to be taken by other people and you're going to have slim pickings for your campsite. If you've got 10, 12, 14 people with you, you need a pretty good sized campsite um, or, or gravel bar to camp on. And you can go back into the woods in some cases, kind of off the river, but it doesn't always work out for a lot of clearings and flat spots and, you know, uh, non underbrush areas where you can put up a tent or, or the other kinds of shelters that most people stay in. Um, speaking of shelters, we have folks that bring tents. We have guys like myself that prefer hammocks. Um, I've gotten screwed a couple times where we weren't really in an ideal spot for a hammock. And while all my buddies were out in their tents on the gravel bar, I was kind of like back in the woods to find two trees that worked that had enough of a clearing. And I was not really sleeping anywhere near my friends. I, I was, you know, kind of removed from them. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're thinking about what kind of shelter, uh, you want to bring and, and where you're going to be staying and how many people are with you, how much room you're going to have, things like that. Uh, you know, <clears throat> my, uh, my girlfriend and I just got a huge tent. It's 14 foot by 10 foot. And it's a, a Magellan El Ocho. We got it at Academy Sports for about 100 bucks. It's a pretty cool tent so far. I'm really pleased with it. Uh, it's really designed for us for more of kind of like campsite camping in campgrounds where we have plenty of room and lots of resources. And we want, you know, big air mattresses and we want to fill things up really nicely. Um, that plays, you know, a, a nice factor there, but on a gravel bar, I would not want that tent. It just simply takes up too much room. It's got too much free space and you need too much flat ground, which you don't get a ton of on gravel bars. You kind of need a smaller footprint in your tents. So we have an REI, um, I want to say it's a, a dome two or something like that. Or we also have a Kelsey circuit two person um, that works really well in those scenarios, which is what I would use. Uh, the one thing that I would recommend if you are going to do a tent, bring something if you have it that has better ventilation than not, because in these float trips, 
especially if you get deeper into the summer, it can get into the 80s at night. And if your tent is just a wall of nylon uh, versus more mesh, you are going to be unhappy. I promise you. I've been there. I've done that. You're going to sweat your face off. It's going to be a hard time to sleep at night, and you're just not going to have a great time. So the way I kind of break the gear that I bring on float trips down is four major categories. I think of it in shelter, cooking, water slash drinks, and then the way that I keep all of that stuff dry and put together. And I think that's an important component to think about is like, how do you keep everything together in your canoe or in your kayak or in your float so that if something does happen and you do tip, you don't lose your stuff. You don't, uh, you know, your phone isn't sitting in a cup holder and all of a sudden it's at the bottom of the river. Uh, I've had a buddy lose Ray-Ban sunglasses before. I've had people have a, a like I said before, a, a, you know, a $300 sleeping bag float to the bottom of the river or sink to the bottom of the river because it wasn't properly stored. Uh, so dry bags are absolutely critical. You can go to your local outdoor store like an REI or in my case, the Alpine Shop, which is one of my favorite stores. Uh, they'll carry Sea to Summit bags or Seal Line bags. I'm a big fan of the Seal Line bags. I've got one of their duffels and I plan on picking up their backpack later on this summer. Um, they're you know anywhere between probably 25 and 60 or 90 liters in size, which is about the same size as a backpacking backpack. So kind of think of it in that component. Um, but what's different about dry bags and backpacks is if you're thinking about your 60 liter backpack, right? In my backpack, in the main component, which is the majority of the storage is where I keep, I'd say probably two thirds of my stuff, but then I have another third that's in the exterior pockets that's not in that 60 liters. They're in the water bottle pockets and the side pockets and the front mesh pocket, all that stuff. In a dry bag, you don't have any of that. Everything has to go into the bag. So if a 60 liter backpack works for you, a 60 liter dry bag is probably not going to hold all of the same things that you would normally have in your backpack. That being said, you're not going to bring all the same stuff backpacking or on a float trip that you would, for example, on a float trip. Um, you may not need a ton of water bottles because you may just make water wherever you need it using your filter, or you might just bring waters in your cooler, ice melts in the cooler, you can drink that water. So you may not need to have all of the things that you bring backpacking on your float trip, but everything you bring should be in some sort of watertight compartment. So I personally bring a seal line duffel bag, roll top duffel bag. It's a really thick uh, kind of vinyl type rubber. It's very heavy duty. If I tip over and it gets lodged under some rock or a tree or something, I have zero doubt that that thing's going to stay waterproof. It's going to stay completely put together. I'm not worried about tears or rips. I mean, I, I think you'd have a hard time getting through this thing with a knife, frankly, um, unless you were really going at it. So, uh, you know, I, I cannot recommend their bags enough. However, they are expensive. I want to say my duffel bag was like nearly a hundred dollars. So if you're going for more of the, you know, Hey, this is my first float trip. I just need something to kind of keep my sleeping bag and, you know, maybe my tent dry and some clothes. Here's what I would recommend. Go to Walmart, go to the camping section. In the camping section, they have 60 liter dry bags for I think 12 or $15. And if memory serves me correctly, there's even a two bag set for like 20 bucks. And you can uh, use those. They're absolutely fantastic. They've got a really heavy duty bottom and then most of them are clear on the sides or at least some sort of kind of opaque material. So you can somewhat see what is in each bag, which I find pretty helpful. I own three of them myself. Uh, that's what I got started with, and I lend those out to friends. I still use them myself on trips where we're bringing more gear than less, um, and that has worked out really, really well for me. The one other thing that I would recommend as far as keeping stuff dry is some sort of waterproof lockbox. Now, they do sell these at Walmart, also in the camping section. I don't know that I would put my personal guarantee on one of those working in the long run. They're not quite set up to be as rugged as some of the other products that I'm going to talk about. Um, personally, I'm a huge fan of Pelican cases. They make little boxes that are probably, I don't know, half the size of a shoe box all the way up to complete suitcases. Uh, they're designed for camera gear and a lot of other type of stuff, and um, they are guaranteed to be waterproof. They're really, really well put together. Uh, I have a green one and a yellow one. I typically bring the yellow one on float trips simply for the fact that it's easier to see if we tip over. Uh, it's going to float, but if it's going down the river on me, 
I can grab it. And what I normally do is just put a piece of paracord around the handle four, five, six times, tie a knot, and then I will carabiner that in a loop around one of the stanchions or one of the side supports of the canoe. So if we do get tipped over, unless there's just an enormous amount of force pulling on that thing, uh, it's going to stay with the canoe. And so that's been really, really helpful in the past, keeping track of my stuff. Um, in the times that I've taken cigarettes, I'll put my cigarettes, my lighter, um, my phone if I have it out with me, a camera, uh, anything else that I want access to on a regular basis throughout the day, I'll put in that Pelican box. It's just two clasps, boom, boom, open it up, get whatever I need out of it, close it back up, lock it shut, because I can't tell you how many times I have tipped without being aware that it was going to happen all of a sudden it's just like oh god there's a tree underneath us and we're tipping and so having uh that stuff sealed away secured i've never lost an important piece of equipment or i've never really lost anything significant on a float trip in the past uh simply for the fact that i was pretty well prepared for that and you know things that that go unnoticed a lot of people will pull a towel out in the middle of a trip uh, you pull over on the side of the river, you go swimming, you want to get a little bit of that water off you, you grab a towel out of your bag, you you know start toweling off, you just throw it on top of your cooler or something like that, you forget it's there, you head on down the river and all of a sudden 10 minutes later you tip and your towel is either completely soaked and useless for the rest of the trip or it is at the bottom of the river and you can't even find it. So, um, you know, keeping your things kind of tidy and tucked away, in my opinion, is the best way to float. But I also have buddies that, you know, have completely haphazard setups and probably have just as much fun as I do. So I'm not here to tell you that I'm right about it. I'm just telling you my opinion. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the less that you bring on a float trip, in all reality, the happier you're going to be. I am the king of gear. I love stuff. I love gadgets. I love toys. I love all of the stuff that's related to the outdoors. And my tendency is to bring way more crap than I ever need for absolutely anything, for work, for, for fun, for outdoors, all of it. Uh, float trips are kind of where I err in the other direction, uh, simply for the fact that it's going to be simpler and it's going to be easier and you're going to have more fun if you keep it simple. And so on most float trips, what I'm bringing are, uh, I'm wearing a swimsuit and then I wear like a Columbia vented shirt, either long sleeve or short sleeve. But if I'm wearing short, I always have a long sleeve with me just for the simple fact that the sun can get pretty intense. And if it's just too much to handle, I'll throw on that long sleeve and it's not so much the heat that gets to you. It's just the exposure to the sun all day. And so having that kind of lightweight vented long sleeve shirt, <clears throat> excuse me, can be really helpful to have throughout the day. Uh, personally, I like ones with with sleeves that I can unbutton and roll up just so I can get a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of exposure to my arms if I want them. Uh, and I also like one with a flip-up collar if I have it available for the simple fact that, again, I can keep that sun off the, the back of my neck. Um, to that extent, I love larger straw hats. Um, you can get those at Dick's Sporting Goods, at Academy Sports. A lot of times the brand O'Neill will sell them. Um, there's a lot of kind of um, deep sea fishing companies. Columbia sells a couple of them. Cannot encourage those enough. They make a huge difference on the total amount of sun that's on you throughout the day. And if you're going to go with a hat, I would go with a visor or some sort of a trucker hat that's got a mesh uh, background or a, a mesh back just simply for the fact that it'll dispel heat uh, better. I've got a, a shitty... Uh, visor that I bought from current uh, the current River Canoe Company on the very first float trip I went and I've had it ever since and I wear it on every float trip and I absolutely love it. It's got terry cloth along the inside visor uh, so it kind of keeps you dry but it, it's just great and uh, visors are great. I don't wear visors the rest of the year but on float trips absolutely. So shelter, uh, simple backpack or sorry simple um, tent or a hammock setup would be great. Again, the hammocks can be a little bit dicey depending on the trees, but I would encourage for most people out there, a two-person tent for one to two people is a really great fit. Uh, definitely make sure that you've got stakes and things like that, but understand you're going to be on gravel. So uh, having a heavier-duty stake versus something that's going to bend really easy the second it hits a rock underneath the surface, uh, probably not as advisable. I would definitely bring some paracord so that you can create a drying line if you want one between a couple of trees and hang up towels, swimsuits, shirts, anything that got dry or, or wet throughout the day. Um, so, you know, simple, simple tent. 
some sort of an inflatable air mattress or pad that you can sleep on at night just to kind of keep you off the gravel. Remember that that's not the most comfortable sleeping surface. It's kind of larger, you know, golf ball to baseball size rocks oftentimes. So it's not fine sand and gravel in most experiences. Um, and then a sleeping bag and your sleeping bag should be something that's a lightweight sleeping bag. You don't want to bring something that's going to keep you warm down to 30, 20 degrees. You want something that's going to keep you warm, you know, down to 50, 60 degrees, uh, maybe even lighter than that if you have it, or just even a sleeping bag liner, uh, depending on the weather is oftentimes going to get you where you want to be. Um, with regards to cooking, I personally, on float trips, I'm a big fan of just doing like an open fire with, um, you know, plenty of food and lots of good stuff. You know, this is where I would kind of error is bring more food than you think and less gear than you think you need. Um, you're going to go through more food than you think you will. You'll need snacks and bars, uh, maybe some chips or some trail mix, something, you know, some Gardettos or, or Chex Mix or something to just kind of snack on, munch on during the day. And then you're going to want like a nice big heavy dinner, bring some sort of sweet, you know, cookie, brownie, candy bar, something for the evening, you know, after you've already had your dinner. Obviously, we'll get into drinks later. Uh, think about breakfast the next morning. Um, one thing to think about with breakfast, we get up and cook a big breakfast. But when I've been on smaller trips with one guy, two guys, you know, myself, I'm not typically in the mood to get up the next morning and like light a big fire, you know, get the fire going again and do everything that's required, then you got to wait for your pans to cool down, do all that cleaning before you get back on the river. Uh, if you're doing that for the relaxation, I think it's great. If you're getting out there to get some miles under your belt, keep breakfast simple. Uh, you know, some orange juice, uh, a cold coffee, um, you know, and, and some bars or some snacks, things like that uh, go a long way for breakfast. But if you're on a big trip, bunch of people, Bring bacon, sausage, eggs. Um, one way to k transport eggs, if you're going to do like scrambled eggs in the morning, which I think is a great way to go, get a water bottle. Uh, crack all your eggs ahead of time. Beat the eggs ahead of time and then use a funnel or just be careful. Put all the eggs in like a you know an empty you know ice mountain 20-ounce water bottle uh, and you won't have egg shells to deal with. You won't have to keep them secure. You won't have to, uh, keep them from getting broken and you won't have to deal with the garbage of the eggshells afterwards. So, uh, it's biodegradable material, but leave no trace practices would encourage us to take everything that we brought with us back home and deal with it, dispose of it in the appropriate manner. Don't leave shit out there. Don't be irresponsible. We're really, really lucky in this country that we get to go, experience these natural places and have fun in these types of, of experiences do your best to keep it tidy and nice and and natural for the next group of people because i can tell you right now if i was uh coming down on a sunday you know my work schedule allows me to do some of my camping trips kind of during the middle of the week and if i came down following uh, another group that had left on a sunday and they brought you know 20 eggs and they cracked them all and they just left them all and then there's you know, food residue and there's animals down on the beach and on the gravel bars trying to get to that stuff, I'd be pretty disappointed if I came across that. So uh, that's kind of how I always think is just how would you want to find a campsite? Leave it that way. Um, so for cooking, again, you're going to need some sort of, of grill plate because you don't really just want to go straight on the fire, even if you're bringing pans, unless you're like an experienced bushcrafter that knows what you're doing there. Um, your pans are going to get really like screwed up with, with ash and, and dirt um, bring some sort of a grill tray. They, they make them at, you know, Dick's and Walmart. They're not expensive. You can get one at Walmart for like 15 or 20 bucks. They're lightweight. They fold up, uh, definitely bring one of those, a pan or two definitely helps. Um, and then make sure you're not forgetting the stupid stuff like salt and pepper and condiments and things like that. Um, if you're going to make a steak at night and you don't have any salt or pepper, you're probably going to be pretty bummed out when you forgot about that. So think about kind of laying your meals out ahead of time. What do I need for the entire preparation of this meal? Uh, you know, do I need a set of tongs to flip the steak and the potatoes? Do I need a spatula in the morning to turn the eggs? Do I need things like that? Uh, so think about all that. And I would encourage you to keep all that stuff in a separate dry bag than your clothes and all that kind of stuff just for the simple fact that if you don't have time to clean it or if you don't have time to deal with it appropriately 
maintain it, it's not going to be in with all the stuff that you really want to keep dry and clean. So, uh, you know, kind of keep those two things separate. Uh, when it comes to water and drinks, I mean, I got to be honest with you, when I go on a float trip, I'm bringing a lot more beer than I am water. Um, it's the one time a year that I really let myself just get after it and drink, you know, 15, 20 beers a day. I get drunk on every one of them. Um, and quite frankly, I'm passing out by like nine 30 or 10 while everybody else is staying up till midnight. Cause I just don't have that kind of drinking stamina anymore these days. So, um, but I am still bringing, uh, my Yeti 35 Tundra, uh, cooler, which is a great size for one person. It would be a little bit on the small size for two. I think you'd want like the 45 or something. I only have one. Uh, I'm not dropping that kind of coin on multiple Yeti coolers, but, uh, an everyday Coleman or any kind of, of inexpensive Walmart cooler will work just as good. Uh, just recognize that you're going to be in the sun, from 8.30 in the morning until 8, 9 o'clock at night. And so that ice is going to melt. Um, so factor that in in the way that you prepare with food and how you're going to keep things dry in your cooler and all that kind of stuff. Just think about that stuff before you leave uh, because it'll make your experience a lot, lot better. Um, think also about... Um, you know, how you're going to stay hydrated. A lot of guys will end up just drinking beer all day long and they don't drink any water. They don't drink anything that's hydrating. They don't do anything to replace their electrolytes. And then the morning following, they're either super hungover or they passed out so early the night before and just, you know, basically were miserable. So, uh, for every couple of beers you drink, have a bottle of water, uh, take some water out of your cooler. If you need to, filter some water from the river. Most of the places that we go floating, the water is absolutely crystal clear. You still want to filter it for all of your you know, animal impurities and bacteria and things like that. Um, but definitely focus on staying hydrated. And I cannot tell you how good a cold, ice cold lemon lime Gatorade tastes first thing in the morning uh, on day two after you've had way too many beers the day before. So think about things like that. Um, you know, a couple of bottles of water, a couple of bottles of Gatorade mixed in with 20 beers will go a long, long way. Uh, the second thing, if you have the ability to float where you're going to be passing, like for example, at our float trip, uh, if we put in at, and this is not going to make sense for anybody, but just bear with me. If we put in an acres ferry, uh, we float 10 miles. We stay just north of the first pullout. So we stay just high, just upriver from the first pullout where most people would on a one day float, get out there, either go to their campsite or go home. We stay just shy of that. And that way, the next morning when we get up and we get back on the river, we can stop there. We can unload all of our trash. We can go up to the store. Anybody that needs to replace beer can and anybody that needs more ice can refill. It's really, really helpful. It makes planning a lot easier. You can bring a lot less beer because you know you can get more the second day. But I will say this, bring cash because I've been on more than one float trip where the power has gone out in these kind of backcountry canoe rental places uh, and they can't process credit cards. So if you're trying to get beer or ice or any essentials, if you don't have cash on you, you're pretty much screwed out of luck. So if you can bring 40 or 50 bucks in cash on your float trip, you may not need it, but it's always nice just to have it with you if you do. Secondly, um, I would say... Make sure that you are communicating with the person that's going to be in your canoe on how much beer they're going to bring, how much water they're going to bring, and how they're going to manage it. Because I've been on so many float trips where uh, either guys in my canoe or guys in other canoes didn't bring enough beer, and then they're basically drinking mine the whole day. Uh, a float trip is a very sharing experience, so you're going to have guys that don't bring enough. That's totally cool. If you bring plenty for yourself, like I'll bring 20 beers for the first day. I'm not going to drink 20 beers. I'll drink like 12 or 15. And then if an occasional guy reaches into my cooler, grabs a beer, takes one from me, hey, man, you got a cold one, I can be more generous uh, by allowing them to just take some off of mine, and, and it makes it a lot more fun. Um, but also just kind of be aware that the easier you keep it, the better off you're going to be. So like, I would encourage you to throw three bottles of, of ice mountain water in your cooler versus bringing like a complex water filter. Uh, I think you'll have more fun. It's just less gear to keep track of, less crap to deal with. Um, and it's just easier. So, um, you know, those are kind of the, the major gear things. So shelter, cooking, 
water slash drinks, and then a way to keep everything dry. If you kind of think about what you're going to do beforehand and you just kind of lay that stuff out and then make sure it all fits in your dry bags and that nothing's unaccounted for, getting there will be a lot less stressful. You can just basically sit back, crack a beer, have some fun with your friends and start to make some jokes. Um, Items for fun, kind of frivolous stuff that I would add to those four major categories of shelter, water, cooking and ways to keep things dry. Um, if you have a waterproof speaker, some sort of Bluetooth speaker, I, you know, you can pick those up at Walmart for pretty cheap, but you know, they also have some really nice ones. Uh, we have a couple of guys on our trip that will always bring one of those. We're, we're rocking the stones and some Led Zeppelin and, you know, some kind of classic rock as we go down the river. Uh, we're pretty conscious of not trying to make it a concert because not everybody out on the river is looking for that experience. Some people are out there for the quiet of it and for the solitude. Um, so we try to be as respectful of that within reason as possible, but we're also out there to have fun. So don't get me wrong. We're not a bunch of, uh, you know, school teachers or anything like that. Um, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, keeping it super, super PG. So, uh, you know, a stereo can be fun. Like I said before, those howler footballs or any kind of an inflatable football that's not going to get sogged down in the water, uh, is a good time or a Frisbee, things like that are great. Um, one thing that I would highly encourage you to bring that most people forget about is suntan lotion. Uh, apply it all day, every day, often. If you get in the water, when you get back out, give yourself a quick dry off, put some back on. Um, I, you know, getting roasted by the time you get to camp the first night, if you're sunburnt, you are not going to have nearly as much fun as you would if you weren't. So, uh, suntan lotion, suntan lotion, suntan lotion. And this is coming from a guy that almost never puts on suntan lotion and never has it with him. So remember to bring it, uh, get waterproof stuff, smaller, like a couple of small bottles that you can just like tuck away into your little dry box makes it a lot easier. If you're constantly having to like unroll your dry bags and roll them back up to get to it, you just won't use it. Um, a towel, preferably one that's microfiber so that it dries quickly, it dispels water quickly, and you can kind of reuse it multiple times throughout the day. Um, also, if that thing gets dropped in the water, it's not going to be a nightmare for the rest of the day with this just big, heavy, you know, wet towel. You can wring those things really pretty dry and get them pretty good. Uh, I always encourage people to bring a camp chair, but just recognize that there's no way to really keep them dry. They do dry out pretty fast if they do get wet, um, but ditch the bag like if you get a, a, a camp chair that comes in a bag leave the bag in your car leave it at home just put the chair itself in there because if you do tip uh your chair's bag is just going to hold on to a bunch of water it doesn't serve any purpose it doesn't help you in any way and i promise you it's just a big pain in the ass this is coming from experience so ditch the bag just throw the chair in the canoe um, and then the last thing is if you do have some sort of waterproof camera, uh, I wouldn't rely on your phone's waterproofness. Uh, if that's all you've got, it's certainly better than nothing because pictures and videos are great. But if you have a GoPro or some sort of camera that, you know, has is designed to be waterproof, uh, that's the kind of camera that I would use. I, I would not encourage people to have their phones out for a couple of reasons. A it's really easy uh, to lose one. I, I can't tell you how many you know videos I've watched of people diving in rivers just to find crap and just, I mean, cell phone after cell phone after cell phone after cell phone because trust me, if it falls out of your hand into the water, chances are you're not going to get it back. Um, you know, Unless you're in really shallow water and you can straight up see it, if it goes into the bottom, you, you're done. Uh, phones are so expensive these days, it's just not worth the risk. And quite frankly, the biggest thing that I get out of float trips is unplugging and just genuinely connecting with my friends and talking and sharing stories and kind of getting back to that old school way of interacting. If you're sitting there taking photos with your phone all day, the temptation is going to be to try and look at all the stuff that's naturally pulling on us, Instagram and Facebook and email and text messages and things like that. The nice thing about the float trips that we have in Southern Missouri is that most of them don't have any cell phone service, but if you give yourself the opportunity to try and look for it, you're not going to connect and you're not going to have that kind of rejuvenation that I always get on these kinds of trips. So my strong encouragement, if you have the ability, turn your phone off, put it deep in your bag and forget about it while you're on the float trip. Use something else to capture the, the memories or ask if somebody else on the trip has one and if they will take photos and share the photos with the group via Facebook or something like that later. Um, that's what I always do with my friends. In fact, we actually even have a website for our float trip, guysfloat.com. Um, I built it just as a way to give our group a little bit more experience. Like we bring in new guys every year, just kind of, you know, peripheral to our group. 
and every year they all have questions and I just go, go to the website, check it out. So if you're interested in like kind of gear lists and learning more and thinking about, you know, kind of images and stuff about what float trips look like, go to guysfloat.com. Uh, it's certainly not like an all-inclusive encompassing resource. It doesn't link out to any re rental places or anything. It, it doesn't make any money. It's just a site to help people that are like super, super basic, just getting started and want to kind of have a checklist or kind of, you know, general expectations. So this podcast combined with that website would probably be a pretty good way if you're just getting started. Um, you know, always be mindful of your surroundings while you're on float trips. Um, the last one that I went on was a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, and one of the guys on the trip brought 144, a gross of bottle rockets. They brought, you know, 144 bottle rockets. And if it was just us, I don't think it would have been that big of a problem. I got a little bit of PTSD from it because it seemed like rather than shooting them all off at once and having fun, they were shooting one off about every minute. And it was while I was trying to go to bed. So as I was just going, okay, that had to have been the last one. Right. And all of a sudden I'm just sitting there wide eyed going, oh my God, not another one. And then two minutes later, and again, if it was just our group out there, I would have been a little bit bitter about it, but I wouldn't have really been upset. The next morning we woke up and we had our breakfast. We did everything we were doing. We cleaned up our campsite. We all got in our canoes and we rounded a, a corner that was, I kid you not, like less than a hundred yards away from us. And there were two couples probably in their like late fifties, early sixties that had gone out for a nice quiet evening on the river. If I had to guess, uh, just based on the looks and appearance of them and the way their gear was set up and just kind of who they were. Uh, they were not anticipating 14 guys getting really rowdy and shooting off bottle work, bottle rockets till one in the morning. Um, so be cognizant of your surroundings. Be respectful of the other people that are out there. Don't be an asshole uh, if you don't have to be. Now, if there's nobody else around and you know it for a fact, get after it, have fun, You know, do what you want to do. But Try to make sure that you understand that everybody else has a right to be out there as well and just be respectful, right? I mean, it would have been fine if we would have shot off bottle rockets for, you know, 35, 40 minutes at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night and we're done by 10 and then everybody can get their sleep, do whatever they want. And we could have still had tons of fun around the fire and, and partied and had a good time. So something to be thinking above. Um, I will be pretty adamant about saying like, hey, if someone's bringing bottle rockets, I'm not going uh, because it just it not nothing against the guys that did it totally understand it but it just it it was tough for me so you know be aware of that stuff um the last thing i will say is uh you know be aware of where your pullouts are if anybody has a gps watch or a gps or a phone with gps that wants to kind of pay attention to where you are on the river to know where we're going to try and camp and how far away from the pullout we are um, you know, where, where the, the canoe company is either going to pick up your canoes or pick you up and bring you back to your cars is really important. Most of the time you're going to get set up with an appointment. So for us, a lot of times we have like a two o'clock or a three o'clock pullout. Uh, a canoe company is going to come pick us up, pick us up in a van or a, a bus and drive us back to our cars. We've done it in the past where we ended our cars and we've done it in the past where we, um, you know, don't end at our cars. I personally prefer to end at the car if you can. It just makes for a much longer drive on the first day to get from, you know, 20 miles away up to the pull, the put in versus, you know, 10 miles. Cause these buses, when they're pulling, uh, you know, 12, 14, 16 canoes, they got 12, 14, 16 guys. They're not the newest, you know, buses in the world and they're back country, you know, steep, hilly, curvy roads. So it's not you're not cruising through there at 65 miles an hour like I do in my infinity. Um, you know, it's it's slow going. You're 20, 30 miles an hour. It's slow up the hills. So that first drive, if you're going 20 miles, can be 45 minutes to an hour. Um, so it's, it's a trade off on either side. But I'll tell you what. If you can organize it to where you're ending and you're literally just dropping off your canoe, walking to your car and driving out of there, you don't have to wait on anybody. You're not hoping that someone's coming around the bend. Man, oh man, does that make a difference? So if you have the ability to set that up with your canoe rental company, I would highly encourage it. But regardless, know the name of the canoe rental company, have the number written down, understand where they are, have someone that you know to talk to because... 
I've been on a float trip before where uh, the person I was with basically kind of lost their shit and didn't want to be out there anymore. And we pulled in at another pullout with another float rental company and basically called our company and just said, hey, you know, we're going to call it a, a day 20, you know, 10 miles early. Can you come pick us up? Um, because we had the number, because we, like pulling out, we didn't have cell phone. You're not going to have cell phone service. So I had to ask to borrow a phone from the canoe rental company. They're not going to do a Google search to look up the other canoe rental company to give me the number to use their phone to call somebody else that I didn't, you know, that I paid versus them. So have your canoe rental company's name, know the number, have it written down somewhere or at least in your phone where you can access it um, because you never know when you're going to need it. You never know when you get out at a pullout and you're 20 minutes late or an hour late. Um, you need to call that company and let them know where you're at and that they need to come get you and get you back to your car. So have that information available to you before you get out on the river and realize that, oh my God, my cell phone died because I didn't turn it off before I put it in my bag and now I don't have the number and you know I don't have any way to get a hold of anybody. Uh, the last thing that I would recommend is understand that everything's going to take a little bit longer than you think it will. It's going to take you a little bit longer to canoe everywhere than you think. It's going to take you a little bit longer to drive everywhere than you think. The check-in process is going to take longer than you think. It's Everything is done by paper at most of these facilities, and I used to get super frustrated that they would not change and mod you know modernize and like be able to do your waivers online and and you know use credit cards online to book things not all these companies have that kind of technology set up and quite frankly they don't need to because what else are you going to do there are no you know who's going to go disrupt the canoe rental industry which is a very hard very labor intensive job that doesn't have a lot of um you know margin of reward so I understand why they're doing it the way that they've always done it. It works for them and it's not costing them any business. So why would they really change? And so keep all that in mind, right? When you go down there, there might be a line of 15 people checking in, doing it the old school way, filling out their waivers, you know, yelling to their friends behind you. Uh, so if you're supposed to be there at 8.30, get there at 8. Uh, if you're planning on getting out at 2 o'clock, it's probably going to be more like three or four. Um, you know, let your loved ones know back at home. You know, if, if I'm planning at home, being home at six, uh, you're probably going to see me closer to eight, maybe nine. Uh, things just always seem to take longer on the river than they do in real life. And that's kind of the right thing to happen. That's really what you want, right? That's that's why you're going down there in the first place is to slow things down, to reconnect, um, you know, not only with nature, but with your friends and, and everybody else that's going so give yourself the amount of time. Don't bring as much crap as you need. Bring plenty of suntan lotion. Um, and, you know, try and keep your shit as dry as you can throughout the day without stressing out about it. And overall, you should have a really, really good time on your float trip. Uh, I would highly encourage Cars Canoe Rental on the, the uh, current river in southern Missouri. I think they're a really great outfit. Uh, we've always had really good luck with them, and they've always taken really, really good care of us. Uh, Pull Tight Canoe Rental is also another great company on the current river. Um, we've had a lot of great luck with them, and they've got a really nice campsite with facilities and um, you know showers and, and everything that you would want. Uh, plenty of beer, plenty of, of provisions in their little store. Uh, you know, I wouldn't plan on getting a gourmet meal out of it, but um, you know, plenty of snacks and, and things like that. Oh, one thing I also forgot when it comes to gear, uh, water shoes. Um, what I would highly encourage every single person that's going on a float trip to do is go to Walmart, go to Dick's, go to Academy Sports, spend $12 or $10 and get yourself a pair of water socks, you know, aqua socks, the stupid kind of pull-on neoprene rubber-bottomed slip-on shoes. They make all the difference in the world in keeping your feet comfortable throughout the day they'll dry out for you and they will uh, keep your feet from getting too waterlogged throughout the day that's just kind of what goes with a float trip but if you're going with more of like a old beat up pair of tennis shoes uh, you're going to have a lot of water sitting on those shoes and in your socks throughout the day depending on whether you're wearing socks Uh, and I cannot discourage flip-flops tevas or like uh, crocs um, enough I've got friends that wear chacos and swear by them on float trips 
I've never had luck keeping little pebbles and rocks and things out from underneath my feet. Uh, my Crocs were miserable. I tried them for a short period of time and switched out of them really, really quickly. Um, so I cannot encourage you enough. Go to a cheap store, a Walmart, Target. They all sell them, especially around the summertime. Go to the shoe section. Um, aqua socks, th- things like that will make all the difference in the world in your enjoyment for a float trip. So if you have any questions, uh, feel free to leave a comment either on the Facebook page for Outdoors Podcast or our Instagram account. Both of them are at Outdoors Podcast of so Facebook.com slash Outdoors Podcast um, or go to uh, at Outdoors Podcast on Instagram. Leave a comment on any of my posts. There will be an episode alert uh, for this post. So if you want to leave it on that one, great. But on any other post, ask me any question you want about float trips. I'd be more than happy to chat with you and share my experiences and my my expertise, however limited that may be. Um, if you're a float trip company out there that uh, is trying to promote you know, particular floats or rivers, let me know. I would love to feature you on the podcast and talk about your floats. And uh, guys, thanks so much for listening. I really had fun. This has been my first solo one. Uh, I promise they'll continue to get better and be a little bit more structured. I had like a page and a half of notes and was just trying to kind of cover all the basics. It probably wasn't as entertaining as it could have been. And I promise to share more stories in the future uh, about some of the fun stuff that have happened, like fires that people have fallen into, including myself. Uh, So thanks so much for listening. Outdoors podcast. I really appreciate everybody out there. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.